Did you guys get self-conscious last week after I pointed out the whistling? There was nobody whistling today. Like, everybody was, like, whistling last week. I make a comment. They're like, I'm not stupid. Man, he's going to make fun of me. He's going to point me out. I'm not saying nothing. No, good morning, and thank you again so much for being here. Man, praise God that one day we will stand faultless before the throne. Like, ever thought about that? That, listen, we all blow it, right? If you're perfect, raise your hand. You can, I give you permission just one time. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. For those on the audio recording, no. Okay, there's no one perfect. But one day, not because of you, right? Man, we forget this. I think the longer we're saved, the more, the, I almost said the more better. The better we get at doing a lot of this, don't we? Oh, well, them over there. Listen, the only reason you stand faultless before the throne is because of the grace of God and his love in your life. Man, we better be so careful. We are so undeserving of the grace that we've been given. Man, Renee and, 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 and Abby, that was, that was amazing. Wave upon wave upon wave of grace. A sustaining grace. They're saving grace. We're saved in the amazing salvation that Christ offers us through his death, burial, and resurrection. It is, it is grace he extends to us to forgive us of our sins and to, to, to take us into his family. We were out here, out here lost and undone, and he, he brings us into his family. Now we're sons and daughters because of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But it's not just that grace. It doesn't stop there. Man, it's, I love that it's wave upon wave. The just shall live by Faith and faith in what? In grace. Man, it is amazing to think about the grace that we've been given every single moment of every single day. It's undeserved, it's unmerited, but it is the blessed favor of God in our lives that God decided, I'm going to give you grace. Man, I, I, I love that idea there in that song. I open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter. 19. Matthew chapter 19, we're going to finish up this morning our relationship goals series. Uh, we've been, this is our fourth week in this series. We've been talking about different relationship goals that we desire to set for our marriages. But really, as we've talked about all along, uh, these are true of just relationships in general. Things that we can set for goals to kind of keep our mind right as we're living in, in different relationships, whether it be at home or at work or different situations. Um, and so we're going to kind of tackle this covenant-keeping goal in just a moment as we get into God's Word here in just a few moments. So Matthew chapter 19, um, and we're going to open in just a moment here in that text. But, but I just want to say, last week I asked you guys if anybody noticed anything different about the stage. Now, not many of you raised your hand last week. I think maybe four or five. When I took the praise band out of it, it was like four or five of you. Does anyone notice anything different about the stage this week? Okay, all right, good, okay, good. Okay, we're paying attention. I like that, I like that, okay? Uh, it was so funny. Uh, it's so great to have Bernie with us this morning. She had surgery here recently, and it's great to have you, Bernie, and Jack to be with us this morning. Love you guys, and so glad to see you getting around. And um, I posted a picture on Facebook of kind of like this, kind of like cut in a little bit, and all the little holes filled in and all this. And she put a comment there, something like, I missed one week of what happened. Like, I was gone one Sunday. What happened? Everything's going crazy. It's just, I don't even know church anymore. 
Um, but I thought that was so funny, and I was just like, yeah, it is kind of quick, but we're just wanting to make some changes, make some improvements, kind of freshen things up a little bit. And I want to say thank you to those, again, that volunteered their time to do the work for the stage and to get things painted and to get things set up and everything. And it's some things that we want to do for a long time, and so just so thankful we were able to finally get those done. And so thank you to those guys and individuals that helped with that. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read something that um, we've been going to Genesis every week. Uh, Genesis 2, and talking about that being united in Christ. And so I wanted to, I want to kind of bring it fast forward to Matthew chapter 19. And before we get there, I, I wanted to review. I apologize. I forgot. I wanted to review a little bit. I didn't even take allergy medicine this morning, and I'm already feeling a little off this morning. But um, I want to review a little bit. Some of the goals that we set, if you weren't here with us, was for our marriages and our relationships to be Christ-centered. What does it mean to be Christ-centered? We keep Christ as our first priority, and our spouse or the other person is always secondary to that. Christ is number one in every relationship because he's number one in my life. If he's number one in my life in all things, if we're a living sacrifice, remember we spent a lot of time in January talking about being that living sacrifice, realizing that everything I do, everything I say should strive to put him first. Now again, let's, let's put a little, little asterisk there, okay, and say this, you're not going to always get it right. You're not always going to be the perfect living sacrifice. And you're, there's going to be times where you might you might slip up and put him secondary to something, but the key is when you realize that happened or you realize that was the fact, we repent of that, we turn and we say, God, I'm sorry, would you help me to move on from here? But what did we say uh, even in January? We said one of the hardest things about being that living sacrifice, about putting Christ first in all things, is not so much me being consistent in that. That's difficult enough in and of itself, that it's hard for me with the flesh and the, the spirit leading and, and all those things and trying to take control. Romans 7, Paul saying, man, I want to do these things, but I don't find myself doing these things. And things I don't want to do, I do. We said that was difficult, but what was the hardest thing about being a living sacrifice and in our context today, putting Christ number one? The hardest thing is when you make that decision to put Christ number one, there will be those in and around your life that will try to remind you of all the times you didn't. And will remind you of, well, yeah, but you didn't over here and you didn't over there. So what's going to be any different this time around? This is just another resolution. This is just another emotional reaction. Can I give you some, some wise words that someone told me years ago? If somebody in your area of influence finds out you're trying to put Christ number one and they're not cheering you on and encouraging you and saying, man, by God's grace, he can do great things in your life, you need to stop listening to that person because it's not going to be fruitful. It's not going to be healthy. We talked a lot about the difference between a coach and a critic. A coach tells you what they believe you need to hear so that you can be like Christ. A critic tells you what they want you to hear so that you can be like them. And here's the difference. A critic speaks with no invitation. A coach speaks with an invitation to speak. And so often, here's what we do. And I'm not going to get too far into this, but I think it's the social media culture we've created. We've removed that little boundary. We think because somebody says something online or somebody says something in a setting, we have complete freedom to just blast them with whatever we feel. Please be careful there. And you have no idea. But I will say this. Invite people in to be coaches in your life. Open the door of influence so that people that are following after Christ can encourage you and speak into your life. But I'm telling you right now, if when you put Christ first and you set that goal, maybe you haven't done that to this point. Maybe you've not been consistent in that to this point. When you make that decision, there will be those that will want to say, yeah, but. And then you just tell them, yeah, grace. 
I'm not excusing sin or bad decisions or the consequences of those things. I understand that those things come and we've made decisions where we didn't put Christ first and it caused some negative things in our lives that we have to now deal with or live with. I understand that. But be so careful. When we put Christ first, there will be those that want to kind of criticize that and, and question whether that's really true in your life. You just keep your eyes on Christ. We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We don't look unto anyone else because nobody else authored or finishes our faith. We look unto him because he is the author and finisher of our faith. It starts with him and it ends with him. He is the alpha and the omega, Christ-centered relationships because our lives desire to be Christ-centered. So we're Christ-centered. That was the first goal we talked about. We talked about being mission-driven in our relationships, in our marriages, that we are together on mission and in our purpose. We're striving for that unity to not just be in existence as we are husband and wife, but we're striving for that unity to go beyond that into our purpose, into our mission, uh, that we as, as couples, as, as husband and wife that know Christ, we desire to serve him uh, in all that we do to serve in ministry, to serve in our purpose of making disciples together. We're motivated by that. Uh, our desire for our relationship is to make him known, not to please ourselves, right? Remember, the foundation of a Christ-centered marriage is not happiness, it's unity, right? That's the foundation, and we're unified in these things, our mission and our purpose. Also, we realize one of the goals we set for our marriages is devil-beating. So Christ-centered, mission-driven, devil-beating. We guard against his misdirection and seductions, but take confidence and that he is already defeated. Please do not get that out of balance because so many do. We guard against his de uh, deceptions and misdirections and seductions. Of course, we need wisdom there and, and all those things. We pray for wisdom in those things. But we take great confidence to know, to know, to know that he is already defeated. He is a defeated enemy. He will still attack. He will still pursue. He will still try to confuse and attempt and all those things. But he's defeated. Why is he defeated? Because our God is greater. He is greater. And so we can be Christ-centered, mission-driven, devil-beating, all because of the grace of God in our lives through Christ. And this morning, I want to look at setting the goal to be covenant-keeping. Covenant-keeping. Now we'll get to Matthew chapter 19. You guys have been so patient Thank you for that. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying, now tempting him means they were trying to test him so that he would stumble and give a wrong answer so they could use it against him. Okay? The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Put away is another way of talking about divorce. They're saying, hey, is it cool if we divorce our wives for any reason under the sun? Is, there, is, there, is, that, is that all right according to the law? Verse 4, and he answered and said unto them, Have you not read? I always love when Jesus would say to the religious leaders who their job 24-7, 365, well, this year that's, that's off, right? Because the leap year, what, don't get into the math. It's early. I don't want to think about it, okay? Um, speaking of math, Josiah comes home with a math problem the other night for homework. Thursday night. And I, I, we were playing some basketball up here at the church, some guys, and um, it wasn't all guys. Emma did come, so I have to make sure I mention that. Emma Proctor came, but, uh, and she maybe schooled some of us, but we're not going to go there. Um, she's pregnant, too, by the way. But anyway, so that's just beside the point. So a pregnant woman schooled some of us. But um, 
That's right. Stay focused. Thank you, Maria. I got to stay. We're going everywhere. Okay. But I called Sandra when we were all done, and I said, hey, I'm getting ready to leave and head home. How did things go with putting the boys to bed and all that, all that stuff? And, and she said, well, everything went fine except we had some issues with Josiah's homework. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? It's third grade math. So I come home, and she showed me the problem. It's a little word problem. And I was like, well, the answer is no. And she's like, yes, it is no. Now, how do we explain that using uh, operations or whatever? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, well, I don't remember either. And I was like, well, what do we do? Like, we, can't, we can't fail our third grader in third grade. Like, I mean, there's got to be some kind of a buildup at least. Get to like junior high math and then be like, son, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sorry. So we may have, I may have taken a picture of the problem and texted it to Greg and said, hey, what do you think? So the three of us, I'm not kidding you. It was like a 20-minute ordeal. The three of us are like, well, wait, but what about in this and that and this and that? And we all felt very, very smart when we realized Sandra goes, oh, I got it. I got it. It's this. And we're like, okay, we were right. We just didn't know how to word it. But anyway, math is hard. Math is hard. So it has nothing to do with anything. Let's go back to the text. <laughs> and he answered and said unto them, have you not read? Now, what I was getting at with that was, that had no point, but this is the point I was going to make. When you think about that reality, that, that Jesus would always look at the religious leaders, the one who studied the law. I mean, they knew the word of God. And he, I love when he always would start with saying, have you not read? Like, it's almost like, you don't know this? Uh, for Sandra and I, it was like, we don't, you, don't, you don't know how to do this math? Like, like, you study this, you know this, you should know this. And I love when he would do that because it was his way of, I believe, his way of trying to get them to realize this is not new stuff. This is nothing new. We've already, this has already been explained to you through the word of God. So why are you asking this question? It was like he was trying to get them to realize the reason of their heart. Like, what was your real motivation here? It wasn't to really know what the word of God says. That wasn't really the point. The point was, you're trying to tempt me and trap me and trick me. Jesus, knowing their heart because he is God, said, you know the answer. That's kind of what he's saying. You can ask me this, but you know the answer. And I love how Jesus does that. And I... To be honest, he does that to me sometimes. There's many times where I'm like, well, I just don't know God. And he's like, no, you, you kind of know the answer. And again, the beauty is what happens when I say, oh, no, I don't. And I do the thing that he says I shouldn't do. He says, there's grace. Look at verse 3 again, or verse 4. Uh, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5. And said, for this cause... Shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, or two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They asked this question, hey, is it cool if we do this? Now, they were doing this to trap him. They knew the answer. They knew that the law did not give you an ex, just a freedom to divorce for any reason, for any cause. They knew that, but they wanted Jesus to say, oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. That's fine. And then they could attack him and use that against them, and you don't really know the law and all these things. So Jesus merely answers the question by going to some place which is amazing. Does Jesus go to the law? Well, he references things that are talked about in the law, but where does he really go? He goes back to the beginning. He goes pre-law. He says, hey, hey, have you not read that he which made them 
at the beginning, way back here at the beginning. Now, what is he referring to? Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter one. Isn't it amazing that something that so many people, even Christians have tried to say, well, that's not really literal. That's not really historical. That's not really this. Jesus sure thinks it's literal, sure thinks it's historical because he's using it to answer a question about what is right and wrong according to the word of God. He says, no, no, no. Don't you know? Have you not read? I wanted to go here because we've looked at Genesis 2.24 every week so far, but I wanted to end the series by looking at the words of Christ in regards to marriage. Again, notice that he quotes Genesis 2, affirming and validating it as historical, not allegorical. Also note that he is conveying that may it marriage about 4,000 years after God instituted it. I mean, this is just a rough figure carries the same importance and commitment. Do you get this? God in the beginning said, this is the point of marriage. Leave father and mother, cleave unto your wife, be one flesh. Now I'll say this here, and I, I say this with all the love, and I don't, I don't want you to take this out of context, but understand what I'm saying here. Every time I sit down with a couple that's getting married, one of the first places I go with them is this passage. And I highlight a couple things. Number one, the idea of unity, which we've unpacked quite a bit. We talk about unity and oneness and all those things. But the other thing I highlight is the key. We'll leave father and mother. This doesn't mean that the relationship is severed. This doesn't mean there's no communication, no commitment, no talking, no, none of that. Of course, let me tell you this. If you're here and you're a young married couple, you need to listen to your parents and in-laws and their wisdom as they're offering it to you. You need to glean from other couples that have been married for a long time to learn from them. But here's the thing I tell newly or soon-to-be-married couples. This is your family now. This is your marriage now. This is not your mom and dad's marriage. This is not the in-law's marriage. This is your marriage. You are one family. God now sees you as one family. And what happens a lot of times is with great intent and great love and great desire and wanting the best, sometimes mom and dads can maybe just interfere a little too much, maybe try to control a little too much. And again, please understand, I'm not saying there's no involvement. I'm not saying we don't help and we don't encourage and we don't do what we can for them, okay? But the idea that, that God is getting at us here is this is one family now. You've left father and mother, and you cleave unto your bride or to your spouse. This is one family unit now. We glean from, we get help from, but as a warning to those that are having children, maybe that are going to be married soon, or, or maybe you've gone through this a little bit here, it's tough. And I'm not speaking from experience. You know, I hope one day my boys will get married. I mean, they need to use you know, some, get some learning about cleaning their rooms and stuff. But, I mean, I know too many wives are going to be like, yeah, it's cool. My, my husband's a slob. It's great. Um, I'm just kidding. They're actually really good with that kind of stuff. But, but when you think about that, like I want to, but I have to be careful that, that Sandra and I don't look at that Anthony or Josiah's marriage and try to get in there and be like, oh, well, no, you need to do it like this. No, you obviously need to do it like we do. This is how you do it. And you got to step back sometimes and just be like, God, I got to give that to you. God, you got to lead them, and you got to guide them. And I'll speak when I'm given the ability to, but God, you got to be God over them as well. And so, again, it's interesting to note that. I just have to make a point of pointing that out because I think sometimes with great intentions, we, as mom and dads, maybe we overstep just a hair, and we don't really mean to or want to, um, but sometimes that can, that can happen. And then you can cause some division down the road and some issues. And, so, uh, and I know there's always the jokes about mother-in-laws and all that, and we always joke about that. 
Um, I got to be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm so thankful for my in-laws. Um, and my mother-in-law is not even here this morning because of uh, a health situation with uh, Sandra's grandpa. Uh, and actually be in prayer for him. Uh, Sandra's grandpa, which would be her dad's dad, uh, fell. And uh, they were taking him to the hospital. He was in the ICU last night. So be in prayer for, for her grandpa. But, um, so they're there this morning. But my in-laws are amazing. I love my in-laws. I couldn't imagine them not being a part of my life. I love that, that, that Sandra's dad I can go to with any kind of car question. I'm not a mechanic by any stretch, but I can go and say, hey, let me ask you, what would you do with this or this or this? And boom, he can help me with that kind of stuff. And so I'm not saying we don't go to them, but just be careful that we don't overstep, is guess what I'm getting at there in that passage. Um, and so let's go back to the text here, because what is Jesus really getting at here? He's pointing out the commitment. He's pointing out the commitment. Nothing has changed. Verse uh, 5, And for this cause a man shall leave a father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They are joined together as one. To set the goal of covenant keeping, we must first understand that in marriage, there's three approaches to marriage. There's three approaches to marriage in our world today. The first way to approach marriage is what's called the casual approach. The casual approach. Uh, this is the idea that marriage is just a piece of paper. It really doesn't mean that much. Uh, it's merely a ritual or a ceremony that carries no real importance. We treat our commitment with a whatever kind of attitude. Some in our culture today, some in our world today, treat marriage with a casual approach. It's just whatever. It's just a piece of paper. It's just, you know, we did that, but it was really more for our parents or our family or our friends or whatever. It's not really that big of a deal to us. That's the casual approach that many approach marriage with today. There's also the contractual approach. The contractual approach. This is the idea that marriage is a contract. But what's true of a contract? A contract is based on mutual distrust, right? Isn't that true? I mean, a contract is based on mutual distrust. If you get someone to do some work for you, maybe to do some, some cement work at your home or to do something around your house, you come into an, a contract-type relationship, right? I'm saying I will pay you this much money, and you're saying you will do this, this, or this. Why do we do that? Why do I do that with somebody doing some work around my house? What's the point of that? I want to make sure it gets done, right? There's even things in there like I'll pay you so much now, so much in the middle, and so much when it's done. So if you don't do it, I'm not obligated to that, and now you're on the hook because you didn't do what needed to be done. See, a contract is based on mutual distrust. I don't believe you're going to do the work without me putting it in writing and making you do the work. Why does the contractor require me as the homeowner or the person that's doing the work or paying for the work to put down, I'm going to actually pay them and then actually pay them? Because they don't trust right off the bat that I'm going to pay them what I said I would pay them. See, some people approach marriage this way. It's this contractual. It's this, I don't really trust you. I don't really know if you're going to follow through on these things. And so, so we really got to make sure I, I kind of keep you in check. This also plays into a very I do, you do kind of relationship. I'll do for you if you do for me. This give and take mentality. Now, are there times of compromise in marriage? Of course there are. We compromise all the time in marriage from where we eat to what we do for, for, for relaxation, 
Uh, sometimes you might want to just go home and do nothing. Your spouse may say, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's go do this. Let's watch a movie. And you might say, well, I don't really feel like watching a movie right now. But you compromise and you go, okay, that's fine. Because you just want to kind of make sure the other person is having a good time and all that, right? But when it comes down to it, sometimes that can be a negative if it's the matter of, well, I, I know I said I would do this or this for you, but you didn't really do this or this for me. So because you didn't do that, I'm not doing this. It can kind of turn into this very negative relationship. And it's not healthy. And more than anything, it's definitely not Christ-like. It's definitely not Christ-like. So we do have expectations in marriage. We can compromise. We can give and take to a certain extent. But when it comes to the core of our marriage commitment to one another, it's not contractual. Now, food is a good one to pick on, right? Like, I mean, if, if you're going out to get something to eat and your wife's like, I think I want Wendy's. And you're like, I don't really want Wendy's, okay? They changed their fries, and I don't like their fries now, okay? I don't want to go to Wendy's. But then you're like, you know what? I picked the last place we ate. We'll go to Wendy's today. Now, the next time you go out to eat, she may say, how about Wendy's? And you're like, eh, nope, did Wendy's last time. We're going to Chinese because it's, you know, the godliest food around, obviously. Manna sesame chicken. It's so close. It's, it's not manna, but it's, I mean, it's, it's there almost. We all compromise on those kind of things. Those are, those are what I call like the little things, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? It's, it's fun to even joke about that. But at the core of our commitment to husband and wife, it's more than that. It's not contractual. It's not a give and take. I guess in a sense it's a give and take because when you agree to be married, you're saying, I will give this person all of me apart from my relationship with Jesus Christ. He's got all of me, and then this person gets the rest. And you know what? If I benefit from this, praise God, but, but I'm doing this because it's the best for them, and it's going to honor God in my life. And so it's not contractual. It's not casual. The third way we look at marriage in our culture today is a covenantal approach. Covenantal approach. Marriage is a holy covenant established by God. We explained all this last couple of weeks. Man chooses who they will marry. Right? Adam agreed with God. This is good. I will marry Eve. I will be in union with her. God brought Eve to, to Adam. Well, because... It was the only two people, so it wasn't like he was like, mm, I just don't know. I'm kind of evaluating my options right now, you know. I'm just, I mean, Eve's cute and all, but there's this other. No, there was no other, right? Like, there's no dating. There's no, it's not, it doesn't exist, right? So God brings Eve to Adam, and Adam agrees with God, and this is good, and they join in union. But Adam made the choice. Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He agreed with God. So we understand, we choose who we marry, so, so if you use poor judgment, okay, if we choose to reject the wisdom that God's word lays out, we can't then go, well, God, you gave me this person. It's your fault, God. We choose who we marry, but we understand that once we join in marriage, because God instituted marriage, we are doing this before him and under him and his authority. So it's an institution that God established. Marriage is a holy covenant established by God. This is the biblical approach to marriage. We understand that in the same way that God has a covenant with us through Christ, we see our covenant to our spouse in the same light. The way we view our marriages, whether casual, contractual, or covenant, 
The way we view our marriages will directly affect how we treat our spouse and how we treat our commitment to them. How you view your marriage, casual, contractual, covenantal, it will directly affect how you view your spouse and how you view your commitment to your spouse. Now, that being said, I think we all desire to have this covenantal-type relationship in Christ. But we also know that reality being what it is, we can slip into a casual or contractual type of relationship. It doesn't mean it's always going to be the same way. We have to always be looking at our own hearts and saying, what do I need to grow? What do I need to change? What do I need to do? How can I make sure that I'm focused on the right things in this marriage? So a covenant is based on mutual commitment. Okay, a covenant is based on mutual commitment. There are two types of covenants in the Bible that we see. And I just want to give you a little bit of background here so we understand what we're talking about here. There's two types of covenants we see in the Bible. One is a conditional covenant. This was common among tribes or nations. Both would agree to be allies together and be there for each other. Sometimes a smaller nation would go into covenant with a larger nation for protection or provision. Okay, we see this today in our world. Culturally, there were serious consequences to breaking a covenant. Part of the ceremony involves the splitting open of an animal or sacrificing an animal. The implication is that if I break this covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. We see this as a conditional covenant. Yes, we're entering an agreement. We will give you our allies, or we will give you our army. We'll protect you. We'll provide for you. But you're going to let us use your land to pass through, to go to that other area. It's, there's a mutual commitment, and both parties benefit. But there's conditions in a conditional covenant. I, I'm doing this, but you have your part you need to do. And if you break this covenant, there will be consequences to it. God gave a conditional covenant to the Israelites, the law for when they were in the land of promise. They gave them a conditional covenant. The law is conditional, and we understand that because of Deuteronomy chapter 28. I want to go over to Deuteronomy 28 just quickly. And this is just an example of a conditional covenant. Now, Deuteronomy 28 comes after Genesis uh, 12, where God gives the promise to Abraham. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Genesis 12, we see an unconditional covenant. Uh, and then we see the law given through uh, Deuteronomy, which would be conditional. So there's the unconditional covenant of God over God's people. But in and among that, he also gives them a conditional relationship as well. And so Deuteronomy 28, look at verse 1. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll give you two verses. I encourage you to read it on your own. Uh, but 28.1 says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord of thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Now, you read through there, he gives them all kinds of encouragements. I'm going to bless your fields. I'm going to bless your families. I'm going to bless nation. It, but verse 1 is the key. He says this, If you hearken. Now, what's hearken mean? If you listen and do, right? If you listen to what I'm saying and obey what I'm saying. If you do these things, if you observe all these things I've commanded you, I will bless you. I will bless your families. I will bless your fields. I will bless your nation. There will be great blessings. Look at verse 15. Deuteronomy 28, 15. But there's some really unappealing buts in the Bible. I'm just going to say it. They're just not good butts, okay? But someone's like, did he seriously 
Really? Yeah, I did. Okay, verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, what I've commanded thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And then you read through all these things that are just going to be cursed and and broken and, and destroyed. You see, God is giving them a condition here. If you listen and do what I've said, by the way, it's the best, right, when we listen and do what he says. Man, I wish I would remember that all the time. It's the best when we do what he says, and all these blessings come. Why? Because we're making good decisions, because we're under his leadership. But when I choose to not listen to him and what he says, and in this case, the law, when they chose to not submit to the law of God, what would happen? Negative things would happen. Curses would happen. The fields weren't blessed. Their families weren't blessed. All these kind of things. Now, it makes sense when you get from Deuteronomy and you go to the book of Judges, and we're not going to go there for right now, but when you have time, uh, what do we know about the book of Judges? The book of Judges is famously known for the cycles, right? Over and over again, we see these cycles in the book of Judges. They were good with God, then they did what they wanted to do and rejected God, and then they would be under judgment of some kind, whether a nation would come in and oppress them, something like this. They would repent and turn back to God. God would send a judge who would set them free and deliver them. They were good with God. They would reject God. And it was just this cycle over and over again. And then if you don't understand Deuteronomy 28, you ju- the book of Judges makes no sense. But when you understand Deuteronomy 28 and realize, oh, wait, God told them this. Then you get to Judges and you go, well, yeah, this should be what happens because he already told them back here. If you do what I say, you're good. If you don't, bad things. Get to Judges. They did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Bad things. There's a condition here. And I've heard it said, if you don't really understand Deuteronomy 28, the whole Old Testament doesn't make sense. Because you're sitting there going like, man, God's taking this stuff real seriously. Like, why is God getting so worked up about these people doing this or that thing? It seems like God's being a little, a little crazy right now. He's getting a little bit far-reaching. No, no, no. He told them. He said, I'm giving you sacrificial system, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I'm giving you law. All of this is for the land. When you get into the land that I will bless you with, here's how you will continue to be blessed in the land. Do these systems of sacrifice. Follow this law. But yet God's people, God's people who saw God do great miracles still struggle with that, still rejected. And God says there's a condition on this covenant. There's going to be some things that happen here. But the beauty of God is that while there are conditions and conditional covenants, we ultimately, as I referenced already, we see that there are unconditional covenants. Unconditional covenants. This is where one side enters into the covenant, understanding that if the other party breaks the covenant, they will still remain faithful. Can we just praise God for that? That there's two parties still. It's still a covenant. There's two groups involved. One party looks at the other and says, man, I really don't think they're going to be a hold up their end of the deal. But I want to be in relationship with them. I want to take care of them. I want to provide for them. So I'm entering into this covenant. You and I are in covenant together. But I understand that if you fail your part, I'm still going to be faithful. I'm not going anywhere. See, there's conditional and unconditional covenants. This is the type of covenant I believe that God made with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God sets a covenant with Abraham. And he holds true to that covenant no matter how many times the children of God faltered or failed. 
Abraham, within a very short time, blew it, lies, right? Oh, no, she's not my wife. Well, she's kind of my wife. She's my sister, kind of my sister. Half-truths, right? He doesn't hold true. He's not worthy of the covenant that God offers him. But God says, no, 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 no. I'm doing this because I want to do something great in the world. And I'm going to bring about the salvation of my people And so to do that, Abraham, I'm using you. And I'm going to bless you, right? I'm going to use the line that will come from you. And one day, the world will be blessed. In the unconditional covenant that God gives to Abraham, he says, I will give you a people. I will give you a nation. I will give you a land. And because of that, the world will be blessed. All the families, people groups of the world will be blessed. Abraham was not perfect in keeping his side of the covenant. Yet God continued to remain faithful. The blessing that came from Abraham's line was the person of Jesus Christ. Even when the people disobeyed and suffered consequence, remember, unconditional covenant, I'm doing this thing through you. I'm holding true to this thing. And he saw it to be true. But in and under that umbrella, here's the law. Here's what I ask of you. They broke it. Here's some consequence. There were some conditions there. But superseding that, all along, there was this beautiful plan of God to bring about salvation. And so we understand that while there are conditional covenants, praise God, there are also unconditional covenants as well. Also, not only with Abraham, but I believe the type of covenant that Christ makes with his church is unconditional. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us that by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. Salvation is not a mutual, we both bring something to the table, and if I break my part, God walks away and is not faithful. That is not salvation in the scriptures. No, God is faithful. If it is by grace and it is not of myself, then I bring nothing to the table. God is the one initiating the covenant and God is the one that keeps the covenant because God alone is faithful. We merely respond in faith to the invitation that God extends. We fail our side of the covenant, but God is faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 says, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. God is faithful even when we struggle in our faith in him. Now this is interesting. 2 Timothy 2.13, if you study that verse out, you're going to see there's two different opinions on this verse. It can kind of go two different ways depending on who you're talking to. When I hear that verse as a believer... And I know that I struggle in my faith. And I hear that he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. And he says, you are in my hand. And my, my, my son's hand is in my hand. And you are in my son's hand. I will, I will steal you into the day of redemption. He will not deny himself. He won't lie about what he said. He's going to be true to his word. When I hear that as a believer, I get very, very excited. Because I know I struggle at times to be as faithful as I should be to him. I know I've not always put him as a number one in my life. But I'm so thankful that as a believer, I hear those words. He will not deny himself. He will remain faithful. And he is good. And he will keep us until the day of redemption. But for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever that hears this verse, a whole different mindset comes into play. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. If he said, if you refuse Christ, you are already condemned, that doesn't change later on. Because he's faithful to remain true to his word. Do you see how this one verse, depending on who's hearing it and where they're at before God, can actually, it can really apply differently to their life. For the believer, yes, I'm so thankful he won't deny himself. I'm so thankful that he abides faithful. But to the unbeliever, 
If you are under sin, he's going to remain faithful to himself, and he will hold true to his word. You see, God is faithful even when we struggle in our faith in him. Someone needs to write that down. I I just believe that somewhere in this room, someone is struggling with that, and we need to write that down, that God is faithful even when we struggle in our faith with him. And I'm not talking about um, the not believing unto salvation. I'm talking about as a saved individual, I put my faith and trust in Christ, he is faithful. So understanding those are the two types of covenants we see in Scripture, we have to ask ourselves this very key question. If we're going to keep the covenant of marriage, what type of covenant is marriage then? What type of covenant is marriage? I would suggest, and some may disagree, but I would suggest that marriage is an unconditional covenant. Why would I say such a thing? As Because as a husband, I am called to, quote, love my wife as Christ loved the church. And what's his relationship with the church? Is it conditional? Praise God, it's not conditional. It's I merely respond to what he's doing in my life. So if his covenant to the church is unconditional. And I've heard people say, well, the only condition is you have to receive it. I get why we say that. And there's truth to that, that if I don't receive the covenant that he's offering, I am not a part of his church. I understand that. Right? What is the unpardonable sin today? The unpardonable sin is to die in your sins without Christ. That is the only sin that can't be forgiven because when I die in my sins without Christ, I stand before him the next very moment under judgment. And I understand that. But what I'm suggesting is in the, the covenant of marriage, if the relationship is mirrored to the church and Jesus Christ, then I have to say that the marriage covenant is an unconditional covenant. But what's true of marriages? Of course, the church disappoints and disobeys Christ. But he never leaves us or forsakes us. Christ asks things of his church in response to his love for her. There are expectations. There are things that God asks of us. But the covenant is binding whether an expectation, excuse me, is met or not. He asks things of his church. He encourages the church to do this or that, to serve in this way. To honor him is a response to love for him, or love for him rather, and his love for us. But if I fail in an expectation as the body of Christ, as a part of the body of Christ, the covenant isn't broken. I remain in Christ because he saves me, he keeps me, and he seals me into the day of redemption. So what kind of covenant have you been treating your marriage like? Have you been treating your marriage covenant like an Conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? Well, yeah, I know we entered into this agreement and this union, but you're not really holding up your part of the deal. For some here today, I've been saying it every week or try to, you're married to someone that either isn't a Christian or isn't really active in their faith. And for you, it's tough. And your temptation is going to be to put conditions on there and say, man, I just... But God says, no, 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 through the word of God, you could be the very light that leads them to salvation. You could be the very light that encourages them and fires them up for Jesus Christ, that motivates them to walk passionately for Christ and with Christ. The truth is there is great beauty and peace in seeing marriage with the mindset that it is a covenant, not merely a contract or a casual relationship. It requires a serious commitment to God through Christ and to one another. Jesus said it in Matthew, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Now saying that again, some of you are here because you are a victim of circumstance that you had no control over. 
you, you were in a marriage and it ended and you didn't want it to end. You tried, you did everything you could, but it was out of your hands. Then let me encourage you today. Get focused on Christ. Realize his grace is there for you. Realize he has a purpose and a plan for you, whether you're married or not. Be content in Christ and let him lead you and put you on mission. So wherever you are in whatever relationship, maybe you're here and you're just in a whole different state of life, a whole different time in your life, and and you're just not sure. I I would encourage you the same things. Put Christ first, get Christ-centered, and he will work it out. I want to give... All of us, really, but especially those that are married uh, this morning time to come and pray. Now, I don't require this. No one's going to ask you to come and pray or pull you out of your seat, okay? We don't, I got to do that. I mean, hope not. If someone does, you just let me know. Um, but what I want to do is I want to give you time to reflect. And I want to ask this question. If you're here and you're married, maybe your spouse isn't with you today or maybe working or whatever. Maybe they don't really go to church, whatever. Maybe they're not even a believer. But you want to come and pray as an individual and say, Lord, I want to pray that even though my spouse is in this or that state, uh, again, some of you, your spouses are Christians and fully devoted followers of Christ, and you're just so excited for that. And you, but the, like, again, maybe they're just working or not here this morning. You want to come as an individual and say, you know what, God, I'm just going to ask that I would do, that I would do all that I can to keep the covenant of marriage. Not conditional, but unconditional. Because your love for me is perfect and pure, and your grace is for me, and I can, I can allow that to be evident in my marriage, in my life. And so maybe you want to come as a husband or as a wife, individual, you want to come and pray. Maybe you come and pray as a couple and say, God, help us to keep the covenant of marriage so that our marriage will be the greatest example of your love for us and your love for the world, that someone else would come to know Christ as a result. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, You don't know him personally as your Savior. You can know him this morning by repenting of your sins, which just means agreeing with God that it was sin, that it was wrong. Understanding that you are not perfect, receive his grace and his salvation and allow him to open up your heart and mind to his grace. Would you pray with me this morning as we open up a time of invitation so we can respond to what God is doing? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have wisdom and understanding in all these things. Lord, I pray that I didn't get in the way or that I didn't cause anyone to be confused with my words, but, Lord, that everything that you wanted to communicate today, that you did, because your word will never return void. Lord, help me as a husband to be all that you've called me to be. Lord, thank you for your grace to where I've fallen and stumbled. Thank you for the grace when I say a word that isn't the right word, when I say something that isn't the most loving. Lord, when I've had a rough morning and... I'm feeling frustrated, and I just speak instead of thinking and asking for wisdom before I speak. Father, I know that I'm not a perfect husband. I know I'm not a perfect dad. I know, uh, I know I'm not what I could be in Christ, but I'm so thankful that you have grown me and so many others as followers of Christ into being the men and women that we desire to be. No one in this room has arrived. We're all on this journey, walking this together. And I pray, Lord, that we would strive for Christ's likeness, that we would do all that we can do to use wisdom in what we do and how we do it. But thank you again for grace. I feel like we just overlook that so often. Thank you for using us to make a difference in this world for your glory. And I pray that it would start in our homes and it would move out from there, that you alone would be glorified. 
Father, bless now this time of invitation. Help us to respond to you with an open heart and an open mind, looking to be changed and shaped into the image of Christ. We thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Feel free to come and pray. You don't need to wait for anybody. Uh, Maybe you don't even sing a word on the screen. You just want to come and pray. Husband and wife, would you come and pray? Would you spend some time with the Lord and commit to keeping that covenant of marriage?